Hello and welcome to the first episode of Park and Cure. Uh, this is the new podcast that's brought to you by Louisville Parks and Recreation. My name is John Ryder and I'm the Public Information Supervisor for Louisville Parks and Recreation. And this podcast is being produced and edited by Aaron Henry, who is our web and social media guru. And now he has taken this on as part of his responsibilities. So thank you, Aaron. Uh, thank you all for being with us today. Uh, in a moment, we're going to send it out to Hannah Zimmerman at Historic Locust Grove. Hannah is the Marketing and Communications Director at Locust Grove which is one of two historic properties operated by Louisville Parks and Recreation, the other being Riverside, the Partisan Mormon Landing in Southwest Louisville. Locust Grove, as many of you know, is located on Blankenbaker Lane in Louisville and was the home of William and Lucy Clark Krogan. Lucy was the sister of William Clark, who was famous for the Lewis and Clark Expedition, and of George Rogers Clark, who is the founder of Louisville. Locust Grove is more than just a historic site, of course. Its uh, year-long programming is diverse. It includes historical reenactments, arts, crafts, and book fairs, and chamber music. But the historic site had a special visit a few weeks ago from Michael Twitty, an award-winning chef and historian. Twitty, who is from Washington, D.C., is a graduate of Howard University and author of The Cooking Gene, a book that tells the story of how slaves sustained themselves with food in the South during the Civil War era. So, let's send it out to Hannah, who spent some time with Twitty at Locust Grove to discuss his life, his work, and what he thinks about Kentucky and its culinary history. Hope you enjoy this edition of Park It Here. This is Hannah Zimmerman, Marketing and Communications Director at Historic Locust Grove. I'm here in Locust Grove's Hearth Kitchen with Michael Twitty. Michael is a culinary historian, historical interpreter, food writer, author, Judaic studies teacher, and the list goes on and on. Michael won the James Beard Foundation Award for Best Book of the Year and Best Writing for 2018 for his book, The Cooking Gene, published by HarperCollins in 2017. Michael is here at Locust Grove, May 22nd through 25th of 2018, as our chef in residence, uh, working in, on the program Africa in Our Kitchens, How Enslaved African American Cooks Shaped American Cuisine. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Michael, what influenced you to get involved with the style of cooking? Most of all, uh, being in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, you have access to a lot of different historic sites and living history sites and historic house museums. And so when I was growing up, one of the biggest things that you had were the demonstrations of historical crafts and skills. And I was most fascinated by cooking. There were so many things about the cooking process that mirrored things that I had seen in my family's homesteads in the South and um, at home with my grandparents, my mother and my father. That really intrigued me, seeing something come from nothing, seeing people utilize nature, utilize the garden, utilize fire, taming and crafting fire to make food. Really sent me out. I think I was about six, seven years old when I first saw our cooking being done. I just kept learning more and more about it, learning about historic recipes. I just kept building my knowledge base until I started volunteering and you know doing other work that enabled me to get a sort of a basis of my own and then trial and error, trial and error. I just came to build up a repertoire of things I like to make, challenge myself to make new stuff and still keep learning. You mentioned that you first saw hearth cooking as a child. Do you remember where that was? Colonial Williamsburg. Okay, and uh, you said you volunteered as well growing up. Where where did you volunteer from? Less so when I was young, but more so when I was in in my late 20s and 30s. There was a living history site in development in my area, and I had the opportunity to help them build up an interpretive plan and design things and work on the garden and just kind of figuring out what the museum would actually do once it was open. And so as a part of that, you know, I went around volunteering and I went around researching and looking at how each museum did its own 
version of the work. So, you know, really studying how they did their stuff, what the ideal was, what the reality was of how they actually executed it, what they wanted to do. Um, just kind of getting a hand on how much time does it take to actually, you know, orchestrate um, certain skills and crafts. How much money would it take to rebuild a kitchen or, or build a, an enslaved person's home? What does that budget look like? How do you get the money for that if you're a nonprofit? All of that, you know, figure out how to, how to write grants. And so, you know, the, you know, there's no class, there's no university that, you know, will teach you that all at once, uh, especially if you use, utilize it through a very narrow lens of looking at how to deal with the stories and lives of the enslaved. So for me, the best education was just trial and error and going through and visiting other people, working with people, and getting experience firsthand. So you have a lot of different titles, writer, teacher, cook, interpreter, chef. How did you become interested in becoming a chef? Or would you call yourself a chef? I would call myself a chef only because, first of all, when your colleagues call you chef, that's that's what you, you know you're a chef. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of respect, yeah. Otherwise, it's nonsense. But the reality is, is that for me personally, I set out to be the first colonial antebellum chef, African-American chef since the Civil War, having the same kind of focused skill set that anyone else who is into living history or reenactment would have. But the bottom line for me is that it's, it's, it's about learning so many different things, taking care of the utensils. It's about the dishes. It's about the vocabulary of the food, the vocabulary of the measurements. It's about the clothing. It's about how the service was conducted, how cleanup was conducted, storage preservation, how to harvest, how to cull, how to do all these different things. So in that sense, I would call myself a chef. So your goal is to have the same skill set in the 21st century as a historic interpreter in, in food, to have the same skill set as someone who was working with food as an enslaved person in the 18th and 19th Yeah, or free, people, or, for, or free person of color, but yes. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. And the reason is because I don't want these traditions to, to die out, mainly because it's, it's nice to be able to say, yes, there was an influence. But what does that actually mean? there was an influence. Where's the context? Where's the material? Where's the backup? Where's the, where's the evidence? Where are the receipts of that? You know? <laughs> Where do you go for your research? What kind of resources have been useful to you? Um, the internet has been incredible. I'm, I'm a big fan of the primary source internet, not the secondary source internet. Sure. Um, a lot of people think that they're doing some research when looking on Wikipedia or something. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is that there's so many open source, primary source resources on the internet now that was never the case when I was younger. You had to pray to hunt down a book, go through a library after library, library in a library alone, library of Congress, which I was fortunate to live not far from, our different archives. And now so many things are being digitized um, at an insane rate that it makes life a lot easier than it used to be. So that's really helpful, because a lot of it comes down to money and time. Mm-hmm. It's an issue of not being able to afford traveling, to traveling yeah. and copies and also buying books. I'm, I'm a firm believer in building up your library. And to do this, you know, people will kind of like go, and did you go to school for this? I'm like, yeah, I went to my own school where I was a professor. I, I was a textbook consultant. I was the, the master of the college. I was the dean. And I think people have to think of it in those terms. I think, and I think that's true for a lot of people who are interested in history, especially living history, reenactment, and, and um, historic house museums. You become an expert because you're both teacher and student. 
So we talked a little bit about you um, calling yourself a chef. How did you become interested in being a chef separate from being a culinary historian? Or do you separate those two? No, I don't separate the two because they've always been one and the same for me. And the reality is that it's all childhood stuff. It's all, you know, kitchen table um, stuff. I told my parents when I was seven that I was going to be a preacher, I was going to be a teacher, I was going to be a writer, and I was going to be a chef. So for me, that was like, <laughs> I'm hyper-focused, obsessive, convinced that it was going to happen one way or the other. Let's talk about some of your influences. Your program title here talks about influences of enslaved African Americans mm -hmm. on American food. Um, but let's talk about your personal influences. Um, who influenced you in the culinary world first? And then who influenced you? Who are some historical influences? Well, I think a big, a big thing for me was growing up watching um, PBS. Okay. Because PBS before there was, you know, full-on basic cable. That was where you got your food shows. So I saw Natalie Dupree and her new Southern cooking and Paul Prudhomme and great chefs in New Orleans and was a Cajun fellow, Justin Wilson, and so on and so forth. And occasionally there'd be other shows that would talk about Southern cooking in the South and Southern food ways. And all those were very important. I also would watch Graham Care and I would watch um, Yan, Martin Yan, Yan Can't Cook, and I would watch all these shows. All these shows. I mean, they were, you know, they were, there must, there must have been 15 or 20 when I was growing up. One of the shows that really influenced me a lot, <laughs> all right, all right, uh, was uh, The Frugal Gourmet. His show was very influential to me because he talked about the history of the food. I was always interested in history, so the idea that the food has history, that the, that the, that the food can tell you about people where they've been, the places, what's important to people. Oh, he did a show where he traced similar dishes through Italy, Greece, and China. Oh, wow. The ancient world, and I thought that was fascinating. And then a show where he, you know, traveled America and looked at different recipes from across the country. So all these different things come together. Now, my first cookbook, as I said, I'm laughing. The first cookbook, my first cookbook was the Frugal Gourmet cookbook. So that was a big one. But at the same point in time, I'm looking at other stuff. You know, just to throw some names out, you know, James Baldwin, one of the biggest influences on my life in terms of writing and the vision, August Wilson, African American playwright who I was fortunate to meet when I was 18 years old. And August Wilson said to me, ask the first question at the lecture he gave. And the theater was packed. I was very nervous. And I said to August Wilson, I said, well, why do you say that, you know, African-Americans should go back to the South? And well, we lost a lot of money when we left the South, he said. So we were trying to save ourselves. And he said, yeah, we were, but we lost a lot of our community power, economic power. We, you know, migrated out from our home. We lost the land. And then I, I was so inspired, I went and got several of his, his plays a day to accompany the ones I already had. And I, I mean, I literally scrounged together money. And I went and uh, got his autograph, and he's got this long line, and he pulled me aside for like 10, 15 minutes, which is unheard of. Oh, wow. And he said, I'm gonna get a question. I said, I wanna talk to you. And so I remember his wife was there, maybe his daughter, and he said to me, you know, I want you to do me a favor. He said, I want you to go back to the South and find Africa for your grandmother. And it was, really profound, and I'm sorry to have him write it down in you know, three plays I have autographed by him, but yeah. he was really a warm, friendly guy. 
And I remember I got this big hug from August Wilson, and there was no, you know, you know, self or take a, you know, selfie or whatever. Yeah. I wish that was, but you know, he was, he was, that was a big, big moment for me. And so a lot of those plays are about this interplay between your heritage and your future. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was a you know, huge. And then of course, art artistically, Romare Bearden mm-hmm. and Roy Lichtenstein, because Roy Lichtenstein did like pop art with, uh, you know, co- you know, comics. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a comic person, I thought there was something very humorous and very satirical, very special about the way he did his art. Then Romare Bearden, his art was mainly, you know, basically cutouts, paper applique, and using sort of like upping Matisse, lacquifying Matisse, and kind of like coming up with like collages. And a lot of the collages he did focused on black life, black folk life, black southern life. Mm-hmm. And so all these different pieces, you know, reading Tony Marks and reading. Alice Walker, um, Tony K. Bambara, all these different pieces came together for me. And then there was the Foxfire books. I bought my first Foxfire book when I was, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. And I was very impressed with the idea that you could sort of like deposit oral history as a, as a, a focus of learning, you know, in someone's lap and to hear. You know, we've written down your heritage. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I wanted to do the same kind of thing. Is that what brought you to the idea of the cooking gene? You know, and in some ways, yes. In a very long, malaria long way ago. But even more so, I think it's just books like that and products like that told me that it was important and it was possible to record cultural memories. And then later on, I learned something else. These memories don't have to be the memories of old people or the elders or the ancestors or those who have gone on. We ourselves need to record our own histories, talk about the stories of our own lives, lest we forget who we are, or lest we forget who we were, or lest we forget for the generation to come forget who we were. So I, I, that's, oh, that self-documentation comes into play as well in my work. So The Cooking Gene is not just the title of your book, it's also been a project for you. Can you mm-hmm. describe a little bit about The Cooking Gene Project, what your goals were? So in 2011, I decided that I wanted to reverse my own sense of amnesia and I wanted to go on a tour. And the Southern Discomfort Tour was all about reclaiming reconciliation, reunification with my roots, my heritage, my ancestors, finding more about my story. Like, I didn't know where these plantations were. I didn't know where they actually lived. I didn't know what the, you know, the real narrative was. All I knew were the, you know, the outlines. And it kind of made me kind of sad because I knew if I didn't act then, I wouldn't know anything. So I raised money on crowdfunding and we traveled from Maryland to Texas, Missouri to Florida. And it was initially three big journeys. And then I just kind of grandfathered every trip I did since into that experience until of course started working on the book. And because of that experience, I was really intrigued by what it meant to be a descendant of enslaved people. When you're any other community of Americans, you don't really feel, you may not feel that sort of urgency, but with African-American people, a lot of our story was wiped out. So you're both the center and the periphery all at once. That is the crossroads experience of being black in America. So for me, it was really critical to get that done. We raised the money, started traveling, had a lot of different travels. I was fortunate because I was seeing just a little bit about everything about the American South. And it was really exciting because I don't think a lot of people actually get to see this out its entirety. And I think, a lot of, I think a lot of times people assume that if they live in a certain locale in the South, that will tell them everything they need to know about being Southern. It's not. It's like being an American. You kind of have to get around to your country to understand. Even if you don't agree with people or don't you know, favor how they live or see yourself living the way they do, 
at least when you get to go see how other people live and how they do their thing, how they think and believe, you get to understand a little bit more about the differences that we have as well as what unites us. So Michael, who has influenced you as a historian, both historical figures and contemporary historians? Hmm. Robert Ferris Thompson. Robert Ferris Thompson, the art historian and anthropologist. He traced, he's still alive, he traced the journey of African people and aesthetics from Africa to the Americas and was really profoundly influenced by and intrigued by um, music and visual arts culture. And so, you know, he had an amazing book called Flash of the Spirit, which pretty much traces out the influence of different major cultures in West Africa in the Americas in terms of art, aesthetics, architecture, language. So that kind of blew me away. That became very interested in Africanisms and i.e. the African imprint on American culture from so far away in terms of time and space. And um, you know, just about everything he said is held up to stand to the um, measure of time. And you know, his work is profound for me, very profound. Historical figures, I think. Um, one of the most important was for me, Malcolm X. Malcolm X, you know, had to teach himself. He said his alma mater was books when he was asked. And, you know, he had to, he felt compelled to write the entire, copy the entire dictionary when he was in prison. He was just somebody who was insatiable as a learner, but also very keen on the liberation of his people. And to be very honest with you, the idea that liberation has to go hand in hand with your scholarship or your spiritual interest was something that was very deep for me and very important. Because, you know, some people can look at scholarship and information and see it as you know, unemotional, apolitical, and I see it as endemic to who we have to be to survive. So all the different pieces, you know, came together for me. You know, you deal with a lot of stuff growing up. You deal with people not wanting to accept you for who you are, why you are, what you're doing. But then you go on and find people who are very much... You know, in the same boat, intrigued by, interested in the things you're into. I encourage anybody who is a little different, a little smart, a little enterprising, to really sort of keep on that path and help people dissuade you. Because, you know something, people being your naysayers often means that they don't really, they don't really know what's best for you. And then you know that your path is the best one. That's some great insight. You've had the chance to work with some really interesting interpreters as well. Do you have some other colleagues that you and I are working with? Well, absolutely. My Williamsburg colleagues, like uh, my best friends, Harold Caldwell, and my elder, my uncle, Robert Watson. Robert has been CW for since he was 19. He's in his 60s now. And a wealth of knowledge. Uh, Miss Kitty at Bradensville, Miss Kitty is like, when it comes to how to represent yourself as an interpreter, how to take that job very seriously, she definitely a force we recognize. Lenny Sorensen, who knows more about the people up the mountain at Monticello than anybody else on the planet, with the exception maybe of a sister who wrote Planets of Monticello, Annette Gordon-Reed, MacArthur Genius Brandwater. All those folks are very important to me because they help me travel and trace part of my experience in such a way that I feel like I have a greater awareness of who I am and where I come from. When you meet uh, visitors on historic sites or you work with the staff and volunteers and interpreters at historic sites, what do you hope they learn from you? What, what are your goals as an educator? 
my first goal is to get them to leave behind the baggage, leave behind the stereotypes, leave behind the archetypes of slavery they learned and inherited, mostly inherited. And I really get them to understand that this story is so much bigger than um, feelings. It's about facts as well. I realize that people have different experiences based on where they come from, based on the phenotype that looks back at them in the mirror every morning. But I also feel like there's some universals that are inseparable from morality, ethics, that we need to be keenly aware of. We talk to each other about each other's history. And so for me, the main thing is making sure that people have a real grasp of what their neighbor is going through, has been going through, and might still go through. And I think that by addressing the unique experience of slavery and the, and the Underground Railroad, we might be able to really help people understand. What have been some of the hallmark moments of being an interpreter? Like a light bulb moment with a student or a visitor? that you take with you, where you're like, oh, they got it, or we had a conversation that meant something to you. When I was at the Smithsonian in 2007, I had a young woman who was Japanese-American come to uh, my garden, which was part of the Smithsonian Folklife Festival in Virginia. And at the Folklife Festival, um, I did a garden representing the crops of enslaved Africans that Virginia would have grown. And they were like 20-some different things, and it really was to show off what they brought from the homeland or what was Africanized. And this was really exciting. I want to see more of it. She comes back the next week, and she brings her friend from grad school, who happens to be an exchange student from Germany. So here we have, you know, someone whose parents were um, put into camps in World War II. Someone who comes from a country where her parents' generation were the ones who saw the detrimental aftermath of the World War II. The Japanese-American woman said to the German exchange student, you know, all the things that were around here at this exhibit, I wanted you to see the real America in this garden. It's the real America. Oh, wow. So for me, that moment really can, really congealed the fact that maybe I was doing something that wasn't just my own little pet project or hobby. I was doing something that could possibly change the way people looked at our history and each other. I think you've definitely done that with your work through historic science. Hmm. You can't really go anywhere and start talking about food history and the experiences of the enslaved communities and the food of the enslaved without hearing Michael Twitty's name. So thank you for helping us expand our knowledge of that. The fact that you are so associated with these topics, what does that mean to you? It's really powerful because I never thought I would be. Oh, wow. Um, I remember collecting all these books and reading all these people, writing all these articles and blog posts. And when I first time, I opened up a book that was about a scholarship of African-American food ways. And the next thing I know, here I am. You know, this page, that page, this page, that page. A body of knowledge that you yourself have admired. Well, we're so glad you're here at Locust Grove to be part of our community and help us learn more about um, communities all around um, the world and through our history. But we're really excited to have you here in Louisville. How much preparation um, goes into preparing a menu like the ones you've been having here with us at Locust Grove? A lot. And you have to really think about budget and how much you're going to spend and how much is too much and how much people will eat. I mean, the catering restaurant portion of food, you know, in some ways for some people, some people it's much harder than the writing and entertainment aspect. And you've had some help this week from some of our volunteers. Oh, yeah. Shannon, Diane, and Judy, um, Jocelyn, they're all extremely, Noah, they're all extremely, extremely um, use it and nice. We're roasting the sheep here on Thursday, May 24th. Um, and you and our program director, Brian, uh, had an interesting experience yesterday uh, with the sheep. 
Could you tell us about what happened when the sheep arrived and what you did with it? Well, we had to hack open the chest Great. and splay the sheep so it would fit onto the rack of sticks. Um, we could have done it the Greek way where you put on the spit, you know, bunghole to mouth, but the bottom line is that we didn't really have that at, at our, um, our disposal. Please use what we had, which is pretty much what our ancestors would have done. So, you know, using it to create them to, to base the meat with all the kind of good stuff keeps it flavorful and moist. And we'll have to give a shout out to our program director, Brian, and Lori Stahlgren at the Kentucky Archaeological survey and dug the pit for yes. the sheep. <laughs> and give a shout out to Carol as well for the restaurant quality of vegetables and meat. <laughs> and, uh, it's, 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 it's intense. It's like a small restaurant that moved into Logos Grove and yeah, frequent shopping trips. It's just We'll be sorry for you to leave. Besides Logos Grove, which is your new favorite historic site, what are some of your other favorite historic sites to visit? Atlanta History Center because they have all the best all the vegetables I need in the ground, okay. and all the intensives I need in the passive. Okay, so they're just ready for you whenever you roll into town. Yeah, usually Juneteenth and uh, Fall Fall Play Festival. Will you be there for Juneteenth this year? Absolutely. So that's June, what, June 19th of 2018? It's that weekend. Okay, so people can find you there. Um, where can people find you online? Afroclinaria, A-N-R-O-C-L-I-N-A. R-I-A. And on Twitter, you're at Kosher Soul. Kosher Soul, yes. And on Instagram, you're at The Cooking Gene. Exactly. All right. We really appreciate that. Um, thank you. We're so glad to have you with us. Well, you're welcome. Thank you, Hannah. And thanks for being on, on the first podcast. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, thanks to Aaron for visiting with Mr. Twitty. Uh, before we leave, I would like to mention a few events that are coming up at Louisville Parks and Recreation. On Saturday, June 16th, Riverside Farmersley Warren Laney will be hosting its annual Farm and Forge Day from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. They'll have cooking demos, a petting zoo, carriage rides, food trucks, and more. It's uh, free fun for the whole family. We enjoy going out there every year. Uh, so you can visit uh, riversidelanding.org for more information and to get a schedule of events for the uh, festival. And in July, Louisville Parks and Recreation will be hosting a street festival and watch party for the World Cup semifinals and finals on July the 10th, 11th, and 15th, um, as well as a soccer tournament throughout the month of June and of July honoring the World Cup. The street festival will be in front of Metro Hall and it will be free for the whole family. Uh, and for more information on those events, please visit bestparksever.org. If you have any ideas on what you'd like to see in future editions of Park It Here, I might encourage you to drop us an email at parks at louisvilleky.gov. Uh, we're hoping to produce one podcast per month, but um, if we get the ideas rolling in and we have the time and capability to do it, we may do it more often. Again, I'm John Ryder with Louisville Parks and Recreation, and on behalf of Aaron Henry, who is producing this broadcast in our entire department, I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.